Welcome to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider, the podcast where we pull back the curtain and speak to the brains behind sales and marketing activity that has delivered real results. Get inspired and get actionable ideas by hearing what they did and how they did it. Brought to you by me, Paul Spain, along with Gorilla Technology. Well, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from John Randalls. Now, John is someone that started out as very much a, a shy guy, is what he tells me, and a pro football wannabe who, uh, as a youngster, headed off uh, to Europe to seek his fortune. He has uh, become the co-owner of a marketing company, Mosh Social Media, and also a business coach and has many interesting insights and stories to share. So uh, really looking forward to jumping in. So welcome along, John. Thanks, Paul. Yep, it's been a journey. Happy to walk you through some parts of that for sure. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's sort of start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? And yeah, were you were you really a shy guy? I, don't, I never think of John Randalls as a shy guy. <laughs> I think... Other people wouldn't have necessarily seen me as a shy guy, but in, inside, internally, I was. And so I grew up in Tauranga. As we were sort of saying before, my goal in life was to be a professional footballer. So that's it's kind of the only North Star I had. It's all I really was focused on. All my interests and focus was on doing that. And so when I got to, I think it was, I finished sixth form, dropped out of high school, bought a one-way ticket to Europe, uh, to be that professional footballer. Wow, wow. Yeah, how much did you think that through? I, I mean, I think of myself in my, in my, in my younger years, and, and certainly I, I had a bit of focus too, sort of where I, where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, and, and left, left high school at a, at a similar time, a small number of years ahead of you, not too, <laughs> not, not too many. But as I look at that period, I you know I didn't always think everything through. So, so what was that like for you? Yeah, so not thinking everything through. Uh, we share that pattern, I guess. <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't crazy. So I was playing national league football at fifteen. Um, my father was a professional footballer in England, so I had it in the genes. But my parents had gone through a separation around that kind of time. And so instead of using my dad and his contacts and putting a plan together, I was like, ah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. Uh, so I bought a one-way ticket to Amsterdam. Uh, I wanted to play in Holland because I was, you know, I'm not a, not a big guy. England, I thought it was mainly big guys running around. So I wanted, I wanted pure football. I had three phone numbers: um, Ajax Amsterdam, so one of the biggest clubs in the world. The next one was Feyenoord, again, a huge, huge club, and PSV Eindhoven, massive club. So I got into a phone box, and um, I called Ajax and said, I'm John Randalls, I'm really good, and I'd like to have a trial. And they said, you must be crazy. We've got scouts all over the world. We don't, we don't take walk-ins. And I was like, oh, hung up the phone. <laughs> Called Feyenoord. So, so this is after you, you've arrived in. I've arrived. You've arrived at Amsterdam Schiphol. Yep. And uh, so I'd been yeah. there for a couple of days. As we were saying before, so this is where I, I kind of learned how to get outside that shyness, mm. that not planning. I turned up with too much luggage that I could carry by myself, and I had to ask strangers, "Excuse me, can you help me carry my bags from A to Z?" 
you were selling from the moment that, uh, I had that, to that learn you got to. on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> it gave me a real insight into how can I do this. And at, so I was 17 at the time, um, baby blue eyes looking up at people that worked at that particular stage. So that really, yeah, got me into that communication mindset. I didn't know anything. Again, I was all by myself. Uh, I had to suddenly uh, make friends with people, ask people where I could go, what to do. So I found myself in this phone booth. I actually said, you're crazy. Called Feyenoord, exactly the same conversation. PSV, give me a trial. Here I am. I'm, so, you know, I'm ready to go. And they said, you're crazy. We've got scouts all over the world. So I hung up the phone. My 17-year-old heart broke. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And again, that whole lack of planning, if I'd have called the, you know, the bottom of the first division or top of the second division, they might have said, come on over. So I ended up, I had friends playing in England, uh, in Yorkshire, uh, Rotherham, and um, which was like the third division of English football. Okay. And they invited me over. Um, I had a couple of weeks like trial there, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was big guys running around wasn't for me. So in the end, with my tail between my legs, I moved to a backpackers in London, didn't know what to do, met three Kiwis in their 20s who were going to the Oktoberfest. And I was like, can I come? Sounds like a bit of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up backpacking around Europe with, with those guys. And you must have been, what, 16, 17? 17, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had yeah. my 18th birthday in a, um, in a pub in London. And... So a lot of, you know, a lot of Kiwis go to London. They've got these stories, you know, they're building their career. They're making this money. I was poor. Like I was so poor. The job I had was working in a department store through like a temp agency. And I was making, I think it was a hundred pounds a week and my rent was 50. And so I was living off like chip butties and stuff like that. So it was a, a difficult existence. And then I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I remember thinking, I'll go back to high school. So moved back to New Zealand basically a, a year later um, and finished seventh form at that time. Wow. What sort of a culture, what sort of a culture shock was that? And were you bringing back some some new talents because, you know, you'd, you'd yeah, well, I, I, I now had a lot more confidence in talking to people because yeah, I practiced. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you, you know, were forced into it, right? Forced into it. It's probably that level of confidence that really helped me then move into these different phases of my life, especially around communication. And this being a sales and marketing podcast, that's where I found my sort of strengths have my strengths of lane, mm. strengths lie, uh, my strengths lie yeah. in that kind of area. Yeah, mm. yeah. Fantastic. Now, um, so you went back to school. You ended up um, university as well. So straight after school, again, so from now I didn't have a, a goal. So I was kind of just floating. And I followed friends to Teachers College in Palmy. And at that stage, you know, Palmy is quite a, they like rugby and things like that there. And I was the complete opposite. I went down... I was wearing like a pink cardigan, uh, black nail polish. I was like a, a Jim Morrison wannabe cruising the streets of Palmy, but then became wildly unhealthy, having cigarettes for breakfast, 
followed by a pie, a Coke, and a Mars bar because the local service station was selling them for like $5. <laughs> and so it was a very unhealthy period of my life. And I ended up, I got like a lung infection. I dropped out of teacher's college after six or seven months. Moved back to Tauranga. A friend got me a job in a construction company. I'm the least construction company guy you'll ever meet. I was driving trucks. I was doing the lollipop, like letting people stop and go. But then I followed a girl to Wellington. And again, I had nothing behind me, didn't know what to do. Fell into a, a door-to-door sales role. So you had to go to businesses and say, I've got these books to sell. Uh, can I leave them here and you guys buy them and I'll come back and you know fulfill your orders or whatever uh, later in the week. So I did it for the first week, was their top salesperson. I broke all the records, you know, just naturally being a communicator. And then I think by the third week I got sick because this was commission only. So I got sick, didn't get paid, and I was thinking, okay, this isn't sustainable. I found a telemarketing job being advertised, and it was $10 an hour plus commission. And I was like, wow, $10 an hour? And I thought the commission might be, you know, extra 20 bucks a week or something. And it was when, it was when um, uh, telecom opened up or the government opened up that telecommunications area and clear communications came. And so I was calling businesses saying, well, don't be on telecom, be on clear. And again, I found it very easy to do, became the top salesperson. So I, was, I think I was 19 at that stage, earning like 75000 a year or something in mid-1990s. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, again, I, I found, and telemarketing is a great way to learn about sales and communication because you talk to hundreds of people uh, a day potentially. Wow. That's you know, really impressive to do so well in, in those roles. When you, when you look, look back, what was it that helped you, helped you do so well? Because everyone was selling the same thing, right? Mm, mm, mm. So it wasn't... Yeah, wasn't that you had a different product to sell yes. from anybody else. So I th- h- how did you achieve that? I think by not being a salesperson, like that that whole, um, you know, the, the, the slight, uh, this, and this is a horrible way. I, again, it's, it's just that caricature of salespeople, the yeah. slimy yeah. guy in the suit and yeah. just trying to get the business over the line. I just genuinely wanted to talk to people and – genuinely believe that what I had was better than what they had. Yep. And so I just had to paint a picture because I was enthusiastic. So I had this authenticity that would come through. People would, yeah, well, okay, would be crazy not to. Yeah. Uh, and that was the difference. As well as I didn't realize there, w- there was three rooms in our sales company. And in my room, it was a lot of sort of the quiet people just going about their business. And the other rooms were the the more type A type, like blah, blah, blah. What I didn't realize is they were all talking to each other and catching up and like water cooler chats. I was just sitting there dialing. So I was calling like 500 numbers a day because obviously a lot of people weren't home or Mm. couldn't get hold of or weren't at work. And so it was just driving the numbers. So your your productivity mm. was was ahead of yes, everybody else. At least double. You, you were focused on yeah. on getting the numbers, getting the outcomes, and and not sort of chit chatting. Mm. 
and again, that that authenticity. So we were given like tools to help us sell. So you could say to someone, if you leave telecom and join Clear, we'll give you a box of wine uh, or, you know, credits and stuff like that to get the sale. And again, I didn't know that some of the other colleagues were doing it for every every call. I didn't do it at all because I didn't think it was fair. So I'd, I gave away nothing that whole time <laughs> and was still outperforming because I was just so true to what it is that I had that these people should know. I probably, I, I, I probably should start a cult or something as long as I really <laughs> believe in it. Well, that and that's such a key, isn't it, is, is having something that you believe in because mm. if you're selling something you don't believe in, that, that's got to be a completely different sort of picture, right? Yeah, 100%. And I don't think, well, I know, So, especially now at 45, that authenticity is really important. And so trying to get something that I don't believe in, I don't want to be there. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, but I can certainly see people maybe in their 20s or in their 30s just you know, starting out going, I, don't, I need something, I need to eat whether I believe in it or not. And maybe that's where that caricature of the that salesperson comes from. Yeah. And you did some study after that as yes, well? Yes. Or, so, or did that sort of side by side? How did yeah, that yeah. So while I was doing the telemarketing, so the clear contract finished and then we were selling space in, it was like a police magazine or something like that. So the same telemarketing company just got a different contract and it was selling advertising in this magazine. And so I started doing that at 100%. That's when I was like, I don't believe in this. And it was like asking, you know, a 70-year-old woman for her last $50 to put into this thing. And I was like, oh, no, that's this isn't me. So I quit, went to uni, and it had started like the week before. Um, I had no interest in going to university before that. And then my mum was always like, go to university. And I was like, no, I don't want to. <laughs> uh, but my friend, now business partner, who runs our company now, I'd brought him down from Tauranga. So we're high school best friends. And he joined this telemarketing company. And then he'd left to go to university. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do what he's doing. So I turned up to uni. I said, hi, guys, I'd like to study psychology. I'm very interested in that. And they said, you had to apply six months ago. You know, all the stuff happened uh, in November. And I was like, okay, well, what can I do? And they had all these, like, prospectuses along the wall. And I was like, oh, English literature. I'm a big reader. That sounds perfect. And then I saw uh, classical studies. And I was like, can I do that for a degree? That's amazing. I love Asterix and all those <laughs> Roman stories and things. So I did uh, literature and classics at Victoria Uni, yeah, for the, the next three years and loved it. So I sat at the front of every class, just sucked it up, but was well aware there wasn't a job at the end of – well, at the beginning I wasn't aware, but as I was going through I was thinking, what's next? Now, while you were, while you were there, you also did some, did some work alongside to support yourself. The sales aspect to so, the learning aspect there? Yeah, yeah. So I and my brother got me the job, but I started working with Hell Pizza as they opened their second store. 
Right, um, so this was the very early days when Hal was a, a, just a little local business in Wellington. Yep. Of course, you know, now we know them as a, as a nationwide, yeah. you know, uh, behemoth really uh, yeah. in terms of what they've, what they've built to. Yep, and so I was um, initially a delivery driver rocking around the streets of Hai Tai Tai. Uh, we used my, our dad's van, which again, he was football coaching in Wellington at that time. So I'm driving this massive van with these footballs in the back, like rolling around. <laughs> uh, again, these tiny streets of high tie tie. But what really impressed me, and again, this it was a real change in mindset, because I thought again I was a a happy vegan uh, in these times, and um, business and capitalism was the last thing that I wanted to be involved in. And then I saw these two guys building this thing with cool people working around them. And I was like, wow, can you, can you be a business person and a cool guy? Wow. I worked with them, you know, in that sort of part-time nature. And so during this, again, I, I worked out my next step was applying, it's called the JET program. And it's a Japanese government program that takes grads to Japan teaching English in schools, teaching about other cultures. So I got in, luckily, and there were six months between finishing uni and going to Japan. And I was sort of applying for jobs, not knowing what I could do with my literature and classics degree. And uh, one of the owners at HAL said to me, why don't you just work for us for six months? Like, we'll give you work. And I thought, I'm gonna do that. And I'm gonna do that not to make pizza, but just to learn how these guys run a business. Brilliant. Yeah, so I, I've always believed in learning before earning. So that was that was powerful. Mm. When you look back, were there any particular lessons that, that stuck with you that have helped you sort of longer term, or was it mostly just lots of little foundational things that, uh, that built up and, and helped you be prepared to, to own your own business in the future? One of the things that I really got from Hal was being relaxed but professional. And that's something that, you know, sort of permeated the mosh culture as well going forward. So everyone's everyone's pretty cool, like everyone's pretty relaxed. We talk about that whole, you know, bring yourself to work kind of thing. But we get things done. And the owner at Hal, um, the founder, so his name's Callum, I remember watching him Tuesday night, 11 o'clock, just cleaning the oven and, you know, doing the dishes. And he was the owner and he was working his ass off. Absolutely solid work ethic. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't have one of those. I've I've always been a bit of a lazy too strong. Um, But, you know, if it's it's nearly done, that's probably okay. And watching this dude, I was like going, wow, okay. So... That's important, you know, really having that solid work ethic. And I've sort of surrounded myself with those kind of people or luckily enough have um, stood next to them. And it's, it's quite powerful when you see someone with real ability going that extra yard at the same time. Mm. So Japan teaching English. Yeah. Were there, were there, were there learnings in that environment about about sales, about so, sales and marketing. Yeah, so I didn't want to be a backpacker English teacher. Like I wanted to do it properly. And so I did a course through Cambridge University. It's called a CELTA. 
So there's lots of English teaching courses out there that aren't really worth the paper they're written on. You go on the internet and, oh, I'm a teacher. This was, a, I think, a four- or five-week intensive course that teaches you how to facilitate to a room full of people, basically. So obviously it was around English, but it taught you how to communicate effectively, how to elicit responses from other people. And I think that's a big part of sales. Oh, yeah, let's, let's start talking about sales. Is really understanding your target audience and the person you're talking to. And if you can elicit responses from them and get them talking, it's very, very powerful. That's where the learning comes from. And you can make sure your product fits that need. So up till then, my, my sales had kind of been natural, very natural. Um, and this helped me put, I guess, some frameworks around uh, yeah, how to communicate effectively. Now, in Japan, you also took a, an interest in, in property. Mm. So how did, how did that evolve? Because you were in Japan for, for how long? How many years? So I was there for five years. Um, and the property uh, thing came across because IRD was sending me, can you please pay your student loan? Because remember, I'd started at uh, Palmy Teachers College. In those days, as soon as you took out the loan, the interest started ticking up. And I was using that loan uh, from the ATM machine. I was getting money out of the ATM. I was buying uh, CDs and posters. I had no financial understanding. Yeah, there's no, there's not a financial literacy course that comes before you take out a student loan, is there? There is not, and there should be. Funnily enough, so I've written a book now on like personal finance um, that I've sort of been giving away for free. So people hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll give you a book on personal finance. Love it. Uh, but at that stage, I had no understanding. When I went to uni, it was all on my loan uh, to finish my degree, well, it was the first step to your, towards your master's was a trip to Greece for six weeks uh, to, if you were selected. And again, I worked very hard, made sure I was selected. So I took a step towards my master's, even though I wasn't going to do one, I just wanted to go to Greece. So that went on the student loan. So by the time I'm in Japan, my student loan's $38,000. And IRD is sending me, please pay letters. And I sort of realized... I don't really know how this money stuff works. And a friend of mine who was at uni, and oh, I just finished uni, he was an engineer in Melbourne, was talking about buying an investment property in New Zealand. And I thought, you are so grown up. How do you, how do you know how to do that? And then it, because he was living overseas, he needed a bigger deposit than he thought. So I thought, maybe I can get involved. So I started reading all these books around property and finance and investments. So just very quickly, uh, pulled some money together, went home, bought an investment property in uh, Rotorua, which we'd held for years. And then he flew to New Zealand and there was, um, what do you call it, some uh, developments taking place. And he said, I've got an idea. We can purchase a piece of land before it has title. So you don't have to pay the whole amount, just a deposit. And I was like, that sounds fantastic. Go for it. And then he called me later that day and he bought three of them. And I was like, okay. So we're kind of on the hook for if, if we weren't able to sell them, <laughs> we would have been in a lot of trouble. So it was quite, quite a risky venture. 
my appetite to risk has always been quite healthy. So we had to wait a year. In the end, we were able to sell that um, and then, you know, pay the taxes, etc. But we made like $100,000 and I cleared my student loan in one check. And that was massive for me. That's great. <sighs> that's, that's, that's awesome. I should have framed that letter <laughs> when it said your student loan is now zero. So that got me wanting to move back to New Zealand, get involved in property. I saw myself becoming a property magnate or something. Yep, yep. So came back to New Zealand with a, a young family. I, I got married and I have a, a son through that marriage. We landed in New Zealand. I wanted a job in property, but I didn't want to be a real estate agent because I had a I couldn't you know handle just the commission. And my next door neighbor was working for one of the banks and she said, why don't you try a bank? And I was like, I have never thought about working for a bank. I didn't even think I would be the type of person. But got in there, because of my property knowledge, I sort of didn't have to start in, in the sort of the teller area and quickly found again, because I could communicate with people, I did quite well and got into the property side of things, ended up having a bunch of properties and then the GFC happened uh, and my assets became more of like a noose and I thought, okay, I don't think the property magnate is where I'm going to be. So I jumped into business banking. And I took a step down because I'd become a looked after high net worth individuals and personal banking. And then became a, a, a business banking assistant in the business side because now I wanted to learn how do I run a business and who's doing well and why. Very good. Very good. Now, the next step from there, because you haven't spent the rest of your career in banking. No, you've, um, you've got your own business. So, how's that? How did that? How did that um, come together? So it came about. I tried a few things first. Um, one of them, uh, a f an ex-teacher friend who he'd left Japan and moved to Laos, and he was living in Laos, working for a private. Uh, private school, so the wealthiest people in uh, Laos, their kids went there. And so together we put to uh, a, a um, what do we call it, edu-tourism, education and tourism plan, that for two weeks we took Laos' wealthiest children to Darwin and ran a, um, yeah, education and tourism course for, for two weeks there. That was a that was awesome, a real learning curve of putting a business idea together and seeing it actually happen. We did it the following year uh, in Cairns, and then the GFC happened and we ran out of wealthy uh, kids. So I'd, I was trying all these different things. And then my original business partner at Mosh, we were looking to do something together. And he was doing his MBA at Auckland Uni. And so... We were thinking, what can we do? What can we do? We actually had the idea for my food bag about three years before my food bag started. And we went through the planning of it and then worked out we just didn't have the capital and didn't know how we would get it. So that didn't happen. But we could also see social media as this big wave coming. So this is 2009. And realized that businesses were going to want to talk to their audiences or their customers and typically marketing was yelling at people to buy something 
And we wanted to be like anti-marketing. So we thought, let's make a business where the companies can communicate to their audiences in a way their audiences want to be communicated to. Well, this is good. Mm. This is good. So that communication thread of mine, because again, I I didn't have a marketing background, but I could 100% see that companies talking to their customers, there was a bit of a disconnect because it was like yelling and selling rather than, you know, now we talk about content marketing and stuff like that. So that's where Mosh started, 2009, uh, on the idea of helping businesses communicate to their customers. And that, you know, that still flows through to the company today. And Hell Pizza was our first customer because I had the relationship and I was like, guys, can we do your social media marketing? And they said, we don't know what you're talking about, but go for it. And so we did it for free uh, for about six months, building up our knowledge um, and a cool brand to then talk to other brands as we as we sort of grew. Right. So so you were very much um, and this was meanwhile you were you were still at the bank as well, right? Yes. So so part of your sales technique there was to was to, you know, give it away until until it was it was so good that you you know, your client was gonna pay for it. Yep. Was to build up actually that that trust that way. So it was that whole chicken and egg like when do you go full time how many you know how because you need more clients to go full time but you need money to get go full time and to be able to get the clients um so i was lucky or unlucky that i didn't really have a choice um so after about two years i collapsed in a restaurant so my phone was on like vibrate the whole time if people had a cold pizza I was answering those messages at like 11, 12 o'clock at night. Oh, wow. That was, that was coming, coming to you. Yeah, the, t- totally. The, I was the whole thing. Yeah. So I'm coming up with the content and answering all the problems. Wow. Um, whilst working full time. In the bank. In a yeah, business banking environment. <clears throat> so I collapsed in a restaurant and I thought I was dying from a heart attack. It was terrifying. My, I was with one of my colleagues and I was like, you know, he called the ambulance because leading up, I'd had these um, tinglings down my arm. My heart rate was sort of palpitating, so I could feel something. And I, and I was riding a motorbike from Tiabatu Peninsula to Newmarket every day. And that can be quite a terrifying experience in Auckland traffic as well. And I remember times of nearly being wiped out by cars. Auckland traffic can be challenging enough when you're in challenging a car. Challenging enough little, in a car, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm... I'm on the floor. I was in a sales pizza. Um, I do like sales pizza. Hell pizza is better, but I'm um, just plugging hell there. So I collapsed. Ambulance took me, and they're you know strapping me to an ECG in the ambulance, and they're like, "Well, your heart seems fine. Why are you breathing like that?" And I was like, "Breathing like what? You know what do you mean?" And what they ascertained was it was a a panic attack, like an anxiety attack, this building up of I sort of been living in red line didn't know about taking care of myself or anything like that my wife at the time and I sort of sat down and said you know this isn't healthy uh what you know you're gonna have to choose one and again uh good on her we made the decision to sell our house and that gave me money to fund myself for three months I gave myself a three-month window of not earning 
to drum up enough clients to be able to go full time. And I think it was a week before the three months that finally I had enough uh, money to come through to sort of keep us afloat. It was like $600 a week or something. So you, for that window of time, that pressure was on. You, were, you had to sell to live. If you didn't get there at that mm. time, you were going to be in a pretty tight yeah. position having cashed up whatever you had yeah. uh, in, your, in your house. And on, you. and on top of that, you know, people have been through anxiety episodes or panic episodes that shadow is always there. Mm. So not only did I have the pressure of trying to do it to get the business going, trying to pay for myself, I'm having to reach out to people in a fearful state. That was that was pretty tricky. Uh, and that lasted a long, long time actually. Probably I would say for the next five years, nearly every day was waking up in a little bit of fear of the day. After about five years, I've, I've actually got these tattoos where I sort of drew a line and said, I'm not going to live in that fear anymore. So what can I do to put myself in a better place? So diet, meditation, exercise, all that kind of wonderful stuff. Like I said, it was, it was tricky, you know, going out to communicate to people. Then I would need time to kind of come back away from that and bring myself down. Mm. Yeah, that's really insightful. I, I think you know it is important that we sort of step back and have a look at that that whole picture, right? That um, mm. that our working life is part of something. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, uh, that's bigger. Yes, and it's that sustainability of even the word success or momentum. When you, you know when you're at the beginning or in the middle of it, it's hard to think of that. Um, or I I personally found it so. But now, I think a lot has gone on. I think people are much more aware of uh, mental health, all those areas. And, you know, sales and marketing can be a, a driven area. And just recognizing, you know, it's cool to drive, it's cool to push, it's cool to the momentum, be successful. And just being aware, you know, what do you personally need to be able to bring yourself down into a, a good place? And it's that, ref, you know, being reflective, I think, uh, can be helpful for people, yeah. Mm. Now, walk us through the what it looked like for you to build up the business, Mosh, Mosh Social Media. Yep. And what, what, were, the, what were the techniques that, that you applied from a, a sales and marketing uh, perspective? From the, the sales side, I remember watching a video, I think it's, and I read the book, Pitch Anything. And the whole thing was about, you know, when you're doing your sales deck or, or whatever, your sales slides, or even, even if you're in a room pitching to someone, making it all about them. And it was like, oh, of course. Again, I, you know, I, I personally preach that kind of thing. Instead of the first slide being about us, we've been in business for X amount of time and we're wonderful and here's all the things we do. Just 100% making it about the customer. So important. Here's your challenge. And... If we don't solve the challenge, this is what's going to happen. And in the next few slides, we're going to walk you through how we're going to solve that challenge. Hmm. And at the end, if you want to know, here's who we are and what we've done and blah, 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 blah. So I found that it sat well with me to talk about them rather than us. Um, so as far as marketing goes, Mosh took us a long time to actually market ourselves because we're, we're not really that 
ego-driven. We sort of didn't need to see our name in lights. And so in a sales sense, it really sat well that the customer, it's about you, man, we're going to help you. Uh, and here's how we're going to do it. And again, that was authentic for me. And so that's always been the solid thing in my sales style, that if it's authentic, you'd be crazy to go anywhere else. Because I 100% believe we're going to help you. And, you know, more often or not, people go, you know, let's let's go. Mm. So a very empathetic approach mm. where your focus is on gaining that empathy with with your potential customer, yes. learning about them, thinking about the challenges that, that they have. So I can't remember this before we started or after we started, but, you know, you talked about getting to understand your customer and hearing from them. So walk us through your your approach to, in fact, it might have been the the CELTA course, actually, where yep. you, you were talking about being able to, you know, elicit answers and pull something out of yeah. out of an audience. It sounds like actually quite a connection from that to this approach to to sales because, you know, you can imagine what their what their challenges and issues are, but you actually you actually need to get that for real, right? Because it's yes. unique to each each person and each each organization. Yeah. A couple of months ago I read an amazing uh, sales book, or it's a communication book, but sales book, uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. He's an ex-FBI uh, negotiator. And he was saying, you know, typically negotiation is let's meet in the middle. When you're negotiating for hostages' lives, you can't say, well, you keep that one and we'll take this one. Or you keep the top half and we'll take the bottom half. So it was all about trying to understand the people on the other side of the table. And... Again, that eliciting responses because we think we might know, but if you keep talking to them, um, so his company is called the Black Swan Group, and you're trying to find the Black Swan. Do you know this story? Like, no, everyone no, thought there was only forever. People thought there's only white swans. So in England, people thought there's only white swans, and then one day someone went to Australia and went, "Oh my God, there's black swans here." So finally, what's the what's the black swan? What's the underlying uh, issue that someone has. They might they might think they've got this issue, but actually it's a bigger one. There's something else going on. And if you can uncover that and solve that problem, that's, that's a very, very powerful thing. Eliciting questions, getting them to do the talking. It also takes the pressure off the salesperson to come up with all the answers. That's great. So how long is it since, uh, since Mosh... Social media started, and and where where are you at in that journey now? Yeah, so two thousand and nine, Mosh started. Uh, so there was two of us at the time, and now it's a team of uh, close to close to twenty. And the reason I don't know exactly, uh, the beginning of this year, I stepped out of working in Mosh, and yeah, you know the the team has sort of stepped up and taken the role that I left from. And I yeah keep a keep sight from outside again. My one of my best friends from high school, and he did the telemarketing with me. So that was the smartest thing we did. Because so his name is Julian. He was working in a digital agency in Melbourne, and was moving back to New Zealand. And we're like, oh, we need someone who actually knows about marketing. And so convinced him. We sat in a cafe in like Huntley or Cambridge or somewhere mad, and like, hey man, you should 
be part of this thing. And so he's a very capable man, and he's in that funny place of creativity. So he's a design person whilst being incredibly process-driven. So he, you know, is, is running the show, and the team that we've sort of built around, like a, a really strong management layer, have all stepped up as well. It's like 100%. The company's probably doing better that I've left, uh, funnily enough. It's so great to see that happening, that wheel turning, without me being on it. Quite a special thing. But they're following an approach to the to ethos. Yeah, the ethos that we came through. And uh, I worked with our account managers at the time who didn't even like that word sales, you know, it was um, that, that caricature I think was quite strong for them. And touch wood in talking with me or being around me, they've seen it's communication, it's fitting the product need to the problem. And we're not asking you to do anything wrong or bad or, or whatever. And yeah, they've run with that. And like I said, um, from a sales side, you know, the feeling is they get it. Yeah, again, the, the, the business is, is doing really well. Mm. That's great. Are there any things that stick out to you in terms of learnings that you can share? That you have, You've obviously already given some really good insights. Are there any other things that sort of stick with you, whether it's about social media and, and whether Mosh or, or your own, you know, mm. your own clients have really benefited from using uh, social media as, as part of how they communicate and, and connect. The whole ethos that we started Mosh at, which was communicate to your customers in a way they want to be communicated to. The reason I worked well in this sort of marketing space was because I wasn't a marketer. So I could be the everyman saying, well, if I saw this in my feed, do I like it or am I being yelled at and sold to? So that putting yourself, you know, putting the customer hat on, sitting on the other side of the table, if I received this, what would I, what would I do? So that's, that's the biggest thing I would say is, you know, can you put your customer hat on and then try to fit your product to that, to that need? That's probably the, the big one. Who, who are we talking to? What's their problem? And then how are we going to solve it? And that's where the brainstorming comes in and how we can best communicate to those people. I mean, looking at, uh, at Hell Pizza as an example, I mean, they you know, have created, uh, you know, a brand that's you know, pretty unforgettable. Mm-hmm, totally. How has the, the, you know, role of social media played in that in recent years? Yeah, so this is me, you know, not insider knowledge, this is what I've sort of seen or gleaned, they were the challenger brand for years and part of that challenging was sometimes upsetting the apple cart and I'm sure they would even say probably the odd misstep uh, in their in their marketing at some points in their journey. And, and that's, that's part of success, isn't it? As you, yeah, oh, you, totally. You, you, you make mistakes yep. and we shouldn't be too afraid of just always trying to be, 100%, you know, not, yep. not make a misstep because you'd never do anything innovative, right? Agree, agree, agree. And then they got to a point where they kind of realised, oh, we're not a challenger brand anymore. Like, we're one of the big fish. And so stopped going away to upset people, um, out of their way to upset people to 
to get eyeballs and focus on the food and the product and just the, put the theatre around that. And I think that sort of opened them up to a, a much bigger audience. They do amazing things for literacy, like with kids. They do amazing things with um, uh, helping, you know, people in hospitals, like all these crazy things, still with the theatre of hell, but they're the, they're the good guys now, whereas in before they might have been quite happy to be seen as, as the bad guys. Mm. So you've managed to step out of, of being uh, the salesperson mm. within the business. Now, yep. there's often a belief, you know, rightly or wrongly, that the best person to sell in a business is the owner of the business, yep, right? Because it, it, the impact of, of every sale makes a much bigger difference when you own the business, right? Yes. So what, what can you share about this, uh, this transition where, you know, no, no longer are you sitting there, you know, uh, within Mosh, mm. uh, Mosh Social Media and, and selling these services – the baton has been uh, has been passed on. Has been passed. Yeah. How do you do that? What I realise, as a business owner, you've always got many many hats, and so sometimes, sometimes you're just you know tired and exhausted, and you might not, you might not make that call, um, or send that email, or knock on that door, because you know the kitchen's on fire, and you've got to go and sort that stuff out. When you pass the baton on to someone and it's their vocation. So that is their role to do X, Y, Z. They've got clear targets. They've got a clear understanding of what, of the responsibilities of their role. And touch wood, you know, you find the people who love it, that they're in a role that they love and are naturally good at. And they might not do things the way you would do it. They'll find their own way but it's their vocation. And so over time, potentially, they have the potential to be better and more successful than you because you've got all the different hats on. Um, and so my business partner, Julian, uh, again, I would be the more extroverted of the two. And I was listening to one of the earlier podcasts here. That introvert salesperson can be very powerful because they're typically there because they've got that technical knowledge and they can explain things. They're closer to how this is actually going to work. I would communicate big picture style. And now, again, Julian's kicking some big sales goals, working with some big companies now because, and that authenticity, he authentically knows how this is going to work. And he'll just explain how it's going to work. And that builds confidence. Builds confidence, yeah. So he doesn't have the fanfare that I would often bring, yeah. but he's got that underlying fundamentals right. And again, you'd be, you'd be crazy not to buy what Julian's selling because it's so clear. So, so it comes back to that authenticity 100%. piece again, right? Yeah. And yep. that we don't all have to sell in the same way. We sell in a manner that yes. is authentic to who we are, yes. how we operate, how we're wired. So Mosh, uh, we've sort of had three, um, what do you call it, like a – a motto or a mission or whatever, and it was uh, smart, real, and accountable. So we surround our team with 
smart people and if they don't know how to do something, they'll find out. And then that being real is that authenticity. He's not going to try and do it the way I would do it. And I certainly couldn't do it the way he would do it. Uh, and then that accountable, that's something that flows through us as well, like very clear with our clients, this is what we're going to do. And if we don't do it, we'll work out how we're going to do it, which was quite important, especially with social media and especially early because social media was seen as a little bit fluffy and we might not have had some hard metrics, uh, especially early. Yeah, we would be accountable in the way that we would try to deliver uh, what it was that we were doing. Uh, very clear with with our clients, you know, this is what we've done, This is these are the outcomes. And can you please tell us if you made some sales at your end? Because, you know, we couldn't plug that gap. That resonates through the company and the people who've sort of taken in my role. So there was two account managers. One's now become the account director and then the other's a sales director uh, or growth director. They believe in that as well and they do things very, very different than what I would do. Um, sometimes it's quite good to not see it because you think, don't do it like that. Oh, it worked. There's so more, if I more see than the one out- way to do this. Yeah, things. totally. So if I just see the, the outcome, I'm like, oh, keep going. Yeah. Right, mm. right. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, you've you've stepped out of the you know the day to day of the business, and now you're you're offering what it is you've you've learned about mm. uh, you know running and making a successful business uh, about sales and marketing. And I mean, I guess there's so many aspects to a successful business, but you've put on this this new hat as yeah. a business coach. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a business advisor. And it's 100% my lane, like I'm in the right place. And it circles back to the, the teaching that I used to do or the running of workshops. What I loved when I was a business banking manager was talking to business owners and then how can I help you grow your business? And I, now I get to do that without the bureaucracy of the bank stuff and all the admin tasks that were associated with that. So, yeah, I work currently sort of one-on-one with clients and helping them, yeah, go through the fundamentals of their business. Um, And I'm not just relying on my experience. So I've joined, um, it's a group called the the Trusted Advisor Network, and they have like the material. So I, I pay a license to use their material. So I'm not sitting around coming up with slides and workbooks to work through. I've got that. You've got all the tools, I've got the that, tools. that you need to operate. So you're able to, yeah. you must have really, you know, um, clicked with their their methods and their process. 100%. To, yep. to have bought into that, right? Yeah. And the whole idea is helping transform a business rather than making incremental change. Um, I've been showing this wonderful graph uh, from the book Atomic Habits, Um and it's called the Valley of Disappointment. Have you heard about? Have you seen that or heard about? Yeah, that? yep. I've um, I've I've read the book, but it, it was a little while ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. so the Valley of Disappointment is, you know, there's the results and time, and it's where we, what we expect to happen is, which is like this linear line going up at sort of forty five degrees, and what actually happens is like this 
poor line where nothing seems to be changing <laughs> over time, over time, over time. And then there's a big hockey stick. And it's that's when you're working on those fundamentals. But people quit uh, before that hockey stick moment because they can't see it. They're in the valley of disappointment. They go, it's not, it's not where I thought it was supposed to be. Um, it's not going as well as I wanted to. And so a lot of my clients are like, how long is that? Uh, is it, you know, is it two months? Is it three months? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's up to you to work out, you know, how much change you can do because it's, it's changed. They're, you know, they're where they are because of what they've been doing. So we fundamentally might need to just twist some dials or make some, help them make some changes. And change can be uncomfortable. So you're, you're really selling change now, aren't you? You, you're, you are having to, you know, obviously, A, you've got to, you know, you've got to get the, the, the client on board mm-hmm. and from, from the discussions we've had recently, uh, you know, through your, your existing networks and, and so on, you know, you are, you're someone that is, is, is well trusted by those mm. that you know. You know, you, you've built a good client base and, you know, in, yep. a, in a matter of months – now with those uh, those clients that have come on board, you know, you've got to for them to succeed, mm. and you know for you to look good as well, right? Yep. Um, you've actually got to got to get them across the line on on a on a you know a range of, a range of changes, which I guess is going to be yeah. you know unique to to each business owner, each business, each business leader. And the the coaching side of it is they have to get across the line. So it's about creating awareness and generating responsibility. I'm not responsible for their change. And this is the important thing. Like, you know, I'm not turning up with a a magic wand. I'm turning up with a mirror, uh, essentially. (laughs) And, you know, what's behind you? What, What hadn't you been doing? Or what about this thing? And, again, some of those just small changes over time can make a you know, that, that huge difference. That's great. Now, we're coming to the end. Question that we, we like to ask, mm. and, and before I took over hosting, uh, Ben Rose would, would ask this as well. You know, anyone listening, uh, this is a hallmark as we, as we finish up the podcast. If you could give, you know, one piece of advice to, to our audience that they could go away and action tomorrow, what would that be? This has probably been the refrain throughout, um, and it's certainly my perspective. Put that customer hat on. Try to think from a different perspective and, you know, making the message fit who you're trying to communicate to. I've been talking with some of my clients around their communication stuff, and a big thing is... um handing over information, not dumping it. You know, whose responsibility is it that the message was received? Uh, Is it the communicator? If you just throw something at someone and then leave and you go, oh, you didn't do, you know, what I asked you to do or whatever, it's your responsibility as the communicator to make sure that was understood. Mm -hmm. So, again, putting your customer hat on and going, how would that land for me? That's a big one. Can I finish with a little little story, a little, little proverb? Bring it on. It's one of my favorite ones, actually. It's about Buddha. I don't know if it was Buddha, but that was the story I was told. A man comes to Buddha 
and he's angry and he's yelling and uh, I can't remember why he was angry. Anyway, he's angry, insulting, saying all this stuff, a tirade of abuse at Buddha. And Buddha's sitting there calmly and after a while he says to the man, let me ask you something. And the man stops ranting and he says, if you gave me a gift and I didn't accept it, who owns the gift? And the man said, well, if you didn't accept it, I, I retain the gift. And so Buddha says, if you come to me with all this anger and tirade of abuse and I don't accept it, who owns the anger and the frustration? Ding! It's one of my favourite stories. Nice. Thank you so much for that, John Randall. has been uh, inspiring to, to, to learn from your journey and there are lots and lots of little uh, little good uh, bits yeah. in there along the way. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. And um, good on you for picking up uh, the sales and marketing podcast, Paul. I know this is an area of interest for you. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting to see you on, on this new lane as well. Thanks, John. And for folks that are interested in whether it's maybe, uh, you know, exploring whether they need an advisor for their business or maybe they've been thinking about how to uh, get their their marketing from a, a social media perspective, uh, you know, tuned up and and heading in the in the right direction. How, yep. how, how do they get in touch? So Mosh is Mosh dot co dot nz. M O S H. M O S H. That's right. And I'm John Randall's trusted advisor dot co dot nz. J O N. R-A-N-D-L-E-S, just like handles but with an R. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening into this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. Kaidera. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Sales and Marketing Insider. If you enjoyed it, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite app for fortnightly episodes. For other great New Zealand podcasts such as New Zealand Everyday Investor, NZ Business Podcast, This Climate Business and more, head across to podcasts.nz. And if it's technology expertise you're after for a small to medium organisation, then make your way to gorillatechnology.com. And special thanks to our friends at 40 Thieves Nut Butters. Listeners to the show can get a 20% discount when purchasing online. Just go to 40thieves.co.nz and use the promo code INSIDER20. See you next time.